Hey everyone, it's Carter. Welcome to this episode of Making It Up. I've been having a blast doing this show, and you know I've probably put out a you know a couple dozen episodes or so by now. And I've just met such a, a variety of interesting people and uh, and a variety of talented writers, ranging from romance authors to thriller novelists to sustainable living experts uh, who write about living off the land. And today's guest was no exception. So today I talked to somebody who writes what I think has to be one of the most challenging things to write, which is historical fiction. Uh, today I spoke to Dr. Adrian Goldsworthy, uh, who's a British historian uh, and novelist who specializes in ancient Roman history. Um, so he clearly knows what he's doing. He loves it. Uh, he, 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 this is what he studied, um, what he has a doctorate in. And, you know, he's appeared on the History Channel documentary several times and he's appeared on the television game show Time Commanders as an expert, uh, in Roman warfare. And, you know, we, we spent some time talking about the amount of creativity that it must take in order to, you know, not only know what, what episodes of history to write about that are interesting and and create tension and have drama and an arc to them, but then to also know what liberties to take and what things that you never take liberty with and make sure you have very factually uh, represented, uh, and then cobbling it all together into into a, a thrilling read, right? So it's I can't imagine I can't imagine the amount of work it takes, um, you know. It's so nice just to be able to make shit up and not having to worry too much about if something's factually and historically accurate or not. Um, but this is his life. And uh, it was great to talk to him. He's very British in a very good way. Uh, you know, very smart. I was a little intimidated. You know, of course, the the stereotypical thing where the British accent um, – makes him sound even smarter. And so, you know, I was just trying to keep up with him. Um, but he was a real pleasure to talk to. And at the end, we made up um, uh, a chilling little story based on a Neil Gaiman book. So I hope you enjoy. This is me talking to Adrian Goldsworthy. So where where are you? Um, just outside Cardiff in the west of Britain. So um, right by the the sea is about half a mile away. I can see it. So I'm on top of a hill. Ah, so do you you walk outside and you can smell it and you can? Yeah, and you know, I'm up on top of a hill. So when the storms come in up the Bristol Channel, you know about it, <laughs> and you can see them coming because you can't. You get to the point where you can't see the top of Exmoor and Devon. Yeah. The Devon coast. The other side of the channel when that's gone you know you've got about 20 minutes and then <laughs> <laughs> so I, I i'm the exact opposite of you because i'm in colorado and i'm right oh, on the edge of the rocky mountains so when our storms coming in over the mountains they just kind of drop down over over the peaks and then it just turns kind of black but it's not coming from the sea it's coming coming from the peaks and you got a lovely cat behind you as well yeah sorry that no, it's two of them that might appear at that's quite right. The usual thing of showing the bottom to the camera. <laughs> just to sort of... <laughs> I, I have a series of steps that I take before I start recording, and one of them is to lock my cat up because he's a lunatic, and he will just scream and try to get into the room and jump on the door. That's so. why it was easier to let them come in and out. Otherwise, they'd just be scratching and yelling outside. And... Oh, he'd be jumping on the back of my chair. He'd be still shouting at me because I'm not giving him attention. So you know, he's, <laughs> he's a problem. So did you did you grow up in Cardiff? Or is that where you're from? Yeah, well, this little town's called Penarth. But yes, funnily enough, um, after university, the first job I got was um, after I finished my doctorate was Cardiff University. So I ended up back here. And it's a nice, it's a small town. I'm not really a city person. Mm -hmm. You're on the coast. There's country nearby. You can get up to London in normal times in a couple of hours if you want the libraries. And as I've normally said, they're well behaved, of course. <laughs> um, so, it, it, but just fluke, and then it, it's a nice place to live. So, yeah. um, I haven't seen a good reason to leave, really. So. so, what was so it was a pretty quiet small town that you grew up in. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's slightly strange seeing my my lad seven, seeing him playing in the same parks and on the same bits of cliffs and beaches that I did. The same, um, the same elementary schools and things like that. And uh, similarly, he's not at the one I went to, but um, it's yeah, the it's it's just. I mean, you know, you meet all these authors, people who live in London, and the thought of writing there just horrifies me completely. Why? I just don't like cities. Yeah. Uh, there's just too many people to it. You want yeah. peace and quiet. I like when I can't think to go for a walk. Yeah. Walking around the streets is a lot more boring than if you've got either you're on a cliff top or looking out to sea or you can go into the woodland or. Yeah. You know. It's a very romantic image that you paint in terms of like, you know, I have writer's block. I'm going to go walk along the, 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 the sea cliffs. <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, get inspired. <laughs> It's it's less dramatic landscape wise than it sounds, but it's nice. It's it's pleasant. So, as you were growing up, what what was your what were your parents doing? My father had a, a little shop. He was a refrigeration engineer, and then hurt his back, so it turned from being basically refrigeration business to electrical goods, and then all sorts. And so, um, you know, we didn't have have a lot of spare cash. Yeah, we didn't go all day much this thing, but it was they were. It was a very close family, so I'm one of those authors that comes from a really happy childhood and background, rather than yeah, all the me, well, that seems to well, yeah. creative stuff later on. <laughs> me too, and and you know, one of the common questions I get is, well, like, well, what happened to you as a child? Yeah. Like, I because I, I write pretty dark stuff, and I'm like, I had a mm. wonderful childhood. I'm like, allow me to use my imagination. Not everything has to be uh, right. What you know, uh, that's the thing, and it's nice and all. It's controlled. You can you can have these adventures without having to get hurt too much. <laughs> well, that's exactly it, and that's the same perspective that the reader goes through. Right? Is they yeah, want, exactly. they, they want that thrill in mm. safe space. And then did you have siblings growing up? Yeah, I've got an older brother. So, okay. um, so small family. Uh, yeah, just the two of us. It, it, it's, but, uh, but I had three – my mother's sister lived not very far, just a few streets away. So I had three cousins, two of them boys similar age to us. Yeah. So it was a bit like there were four of us around and then with a couple of other um, you know, close friends. It, there was always that sense of a broader group. Right. Um, they're cousins, but they're pretty much like brothers, really. And the, the sister a little bit because she's that much younger than the rest of us. And the only girl out of five was um, sort of left out a bit. But now, right. as adults, we get on well. But uh, right. as children, you thought, oh, the little, you know, you don't be followed around by this. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and so, I mean, you, you know, in addition to obviously being a prolific novelist uh, and, and even surpassing that is your, your depth of non nonfiction and military history. When you were young, did either of those two things speak to you? I want to be a storyteller or I, I'm really interested in, in military history. Like what was kind of the spark there? It's a bit of both. I mean, I had a, um, my father's cousin wrote detective stories in a oh. modest way. So I knew there was a writer um, but was that interesting that was, to you? Was that like strange? The, the shameful thing is I've never actually read any of his books. Yeah, I've always meant to, but even now you sort of thought because you know someone somehow right. and it's less, less my thing. Right. But I'll, I'll get around to them one day and I suspect they're very good. But, yeah. so, it's Was he it's kind of known or uh, kind of a Moderately small, well known. He yeah. did his, he wrote these mostly detective stories that has sort of Agatha Christie feel very, very, period british yeah yeah they yeah. did really well they did quite well in in the states they did particularly well in japan and places like there was a sort of i think it's where people wanted the britain they thought existed yeah. but probably never quite did but to um, have them even published that far abroad is you know signals some degree of success no yeah well i think there was even a japanese film bizarrely oh, wow. which he said he you know they, they offered to let him see but he's all already disappointed right. yeah right. <laughs> a bittersweet thing given that they'd probably changed nearly everything anyway. So right. uh, oh, I'd follow with the, um, but no, I, I think um, uh, one of the interesting things was growing up, my father had been in as an apprentice teenager at sea in the merchant Navy during the second world war. And then in the army at the very end and afterwards, and in this little shop he had where we'd often be helping out all these old blokes appeared 
with nothing better to do. And you, the, you get them in shops in Britain. They hang around to the point where customers must think they actually work there. Right. But they basically come for tea and a chat. Yeah. And they were nearly It's kind of like the pub, I guess. They're just yeah, there. Yeah, it is. They're it's just not drinking. in the daytime because, they're, 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 you know, the, um, the opening hours are much stricter in those days yeah. back in the 70s. So I'd hear, you know, one of them had been um, in the RAF in India. Mm-hmm. Another one had been... Um, Again, in India, was as before the war, was a regular soldier, and there's a, and you'd hear all these stories of exotic places. And when the kids were around, they'd tell you, you'd hear them talking to each other, and it would be all the funny stuff. Right, right. And then you got the impression later on, by which time most of them had died. Sometimes Dad would mention these things, and you think, oh crikey, you know, they they'd been through. That so, it, but it gave me that sense that there'd been all these exciting things going on. There were great stories, but it was very human. Yeah. And, and that's what I always hoped to do with the Romans because I was interested in them because there's Roman remains not far from where I live. So sure. you grow up with it. It's 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 part of my history. You know, the Egyptians, the Greeks. Yeah, that's fine, but it's not here. Right. When they built a road that I can wall. walk yeah, on. Exactly. So it felt a bit more personal. So the sort of combination of the two. Um, I mean, I always, I'm not sure when, but I think from fairly young, I always hoped to be able to write stories but I was convinced I'd have to work for 20, 30 years before I could do it. And I never thought I'd make a living to started doing the nonfiction first doing that. Yeah. I didn't think I didn't know anybody who did that, you know? Um, and it just, it worked out largely through chance as much as anything. And, um, so you, I, what I, did you study? Ancient history. So I, I did that as an undergraduate. Then I stayed on, did my doctorate straight away when I started, so Finished that by the time I was about 24, 25-ish. Um, so it's interesting that you say, like, first of all, even to have the awareness <laughs> when you're young and wanting to be a writer and thinking, like, well, how the hell am I going to make a living doing that? <laughs> That's pretty profoundly aware for somebody that age because it's it's, <laughs> it, it, it's the God's honest truth. Um, and then the so was the idea truly? I mean, I know you have obviously a profound interest in in in, in the subject of your nonfiction books. Uh, but was there really this kind of business-like decision of like, I probably have a better shot of doing this professionally if I write nonfiction? I, it, it was it was really coincidence. I mean, it, it, yeah. it I'd, um, I'd, as I say, I didn't think you could make a living with nonfiction, but I'd, I'd started out on the usual academic career. I was doing part-time teaching. Then I had a post for a couple of years, the, the one in Cardiff that brought me back here. And then I was doing other short-term things, bits of teaching here, bits of there. And at that point, through just luck, really, my thesis was based on, drew, or at least drew inspiration from a book by the famous military historian John Keegan. Mm-hmm, um, sure. The Face of Battle. I tried to do that with the Romans. And I said to them, you know, this was an academic publisher, Oxford University Press. They printed 300 copies. Mm-hmm. Thing. Hey, they the printed copies. You, you didn't get any royalties at all until they print until they'd sold more than five hundred, and they didn't yeah. even start. I mean, in fact, the thing's still in print. But it's. Um, I said, well, he was John Keegan was working at the, the Telegraph newspaper by then. And I said, well, would you send him a copy just to, to say thank you? And he then happened to be editing a coffee table book series of the history of warfare. Maybe didn't know somebody who to do the Roman period, and there was one volume on a thousand years of Roman military history, compared to you know there were about three just on the Second World War, twenty-four volumes here, and I had to so I got a contract just as my job ended. This contract came along, and because nearly everybody else was quite famous and well established, I got a really good deal. It was the same as everybody; they did a standard one. So having only ever been a student before and not really knowing what money was about or anything like that. Suddenly I had this contract. The publisher liked that book, asked me to do another one, gave me a bit more money. Um, so I wrote that. And then I, it, it, the contracts kept coming in. As I deliver a book, they'd say, oh, can you do another one? And they were, there was money there. And then eventually, partly because I'd actually written a novel uh, and I was trying to sell that, I approached some agents, signed up with one, and... They didn't sell the novel, but they got me about four times as much for the as a, of an advance for the the next nonfiction book. So my so, survival of Caesar, and then I thought, well, frankly, I don't want to go back to the academic world anyway. This right. is bad. So you had you had an academic contract that was ending. So by the time you were writing and 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 had sold, 
in an advance this first volume associated with Keegan, you were that was your only work. You were just writing. You weren't you weren't teaching at that point. I, for about oh, six years, maybe more. Okay. I kept teaching, even if it was only one day a week. Right. Um, and this is all again, in your twenties. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I, I was single. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have any of these things to worry about. I'd been really lucky because I scraped through the old system you had in Britain where you could go through university. And if you did well enough academically, the state paid all your fees. And huh. gave you a grant to yeah. On. Yeah. Because I wasn't that um, lavish in my lifestyle. I'd managed to live off this and I just about sort of used it up and, you know, you supplement it with a bit of bits and pieces. But I, mine was the last year when if you'd got a, a first class degree, you were guaranteed of grant to do a doctorate hmm. and the next year you might get it, but you might not. And now, you know, as in the States, the kids are coming out with these huge debts. So I had, didn't have debt. I was used to not having very much money because I'd never had any. And they kept asking ask me to write books. So I thought, well, this is fun. It, it, the interesting thing about writing for a, an audience rather than just your academic colleagues, because you do the academic stuff and you will probably meet every single person who reads that article or that book sometime. <laughs> if you don't know them already, you know, right. it's that sort of level you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so suddenly thinking there are thousands of people out there who might be reading this and having to go from, you know, a doctorate where you're covering yourself against any possible question the examiners could throw at you. You know, it's, you're trying to show just how clever you are. So it's referenced heavily, all this, every, suddenly from that, I've got to go and, summarize a thousand years of military history in, in 40,000 words. Oh, 40,000 words. Wow. Yeah. So it was a big jump, but it did be the world of good. But I actually thought, well, this is fun. This is why I got interested in history was to tell stories about it and try and explain to people why it's fun, why it interests me. <laughs> right. Because you can, well, first of all, I'm kind of surprised that there weren't <laughs> more volumes out there on Roman military history, right? That seems surprising to me that there was a dearth of that. Um, so, but a great advantage for you because that was your. Oh, your, I know. Again, <laughs> the chance that my thesis had been on this subject, my interests were there, and that there's a market. There's more of a market for military history, really, especially at that sort of lower level, than there is for, say, just even political, let alone social economic stuff. Interesting. Um, and but, yeah. I was but just going to say the the idea of taking a thousand years into forty thousand words. That there's a profound creativity that has to be involved to do that, right? Um, because you're dealing with nonfiction, but you have to determine what are the what are the, the the pivotal events, what are the interesting events, and how does it all thread through so you can see, you know, how this all kind of came together. Um, that's an enormous task, but but yeah, I really think creativity must have played a huge part of that. Well, it, it was, I mean, it took me four or five drafts just to yeah, get it. Yeah. So, and, but it was, it was really liberating because you, you, you were trying to say, well, in a sense, what would have been the book I would have liked to have read before I'd gone off to university, before I'd done all this stuff. So right. it's that. So, and then, and it's, you know, I'd had a go at writing a novel before and not got anywhere at all with it. Um, but that was just, I, I came back when I finished my doctorate, I had no money, no job for a year or so, and all this pent up energy because, but I didn't have any money to sort of travel anywhere and I wasn't going to rough it that much. So I wrote a novel that probably was terrible and did that sending it around to everybody, not really having a clue how you go about this mm -hmm. would get other people's rejection letters back. You know, where they just shoved it in the wrong envelope or a sample right. of this, this right. or somebody else's book. And it's been photocopied 20 <laughs> times over and it's barely like, oh, yeah, um, I know. I, I've been there. Yeah. So it's that which, in a sense, made things easier because I got that that first stage out of my way, then got a job for a bit. So I had a salary. Um, and then, as I say, at the end of this job, the contract came along. And it, it's one of the problems is that in the academic world, you're not encouraged to write well. <laughs> and you're almost looked on with suspicion if you communicate because, well, the ideas can't be very good. If it's easy to understand or read. Right. Lots of passive voice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, my supervisor was better than most. And he actually said, think of it like a book and maybe imagine that somebody might want to read this. Yeah. But for a lot of people. It's, so it, it's, it's been, and I, you know, when I go around and give talks in universities, you'll meet people saying, oh, I'd love to write for a wider audience and, you know, basically sell books. 
but most of them actually want to write their little niche research topic yeah. and just get paid for it. And yeah. Go, rather than thinking, well, who's going to buy this? Who's going to read this? Right. Uh, yeah. And what's my source of pride in having public? I mean, so, you know, my, I started off in a career in um, hospitality real estate. And so we were writing market reports about yeah. here's what's happening economically uh, in the, and I had this, I had the exact same kind of realization is like, well, if somebody's reading this, why can't it be accessible? So they, it, yeah. so it can be actionable information. Why does it have to be so dense and passive voiced? You know, because, and that was just the template, right? It, this is mm. how these reports are yeah. like, well, you know, if I were reading this, I would want to know, here are the main things you have to know. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And and so I, I love the challenge of making it accessible because re regardless of what you're talking about, it's mm. kind of all storytelling. Here's the story about yeah. this market. Here's the story about, you know, whatever. And, and why wouldn't anyone want to read an interesting story as opposed to <laughs> an uninteresting one? I never understood why it had to be so dense. Um, so what, I mean, I'm interested about this novel you wrote, what, you know, you talked about the energy you had and, and you had the time. Did, was it, what was the impetus for it? Was it an idea or was it like, Hey, I want to see if I can do this. I want to be, I want to say that I've written a novel or was it, you know, what was it? It was most, I think it just back in those days as well, it, it was before, I mean, this would have been 1994. Mm -hmm. Then there was very little in the way of historical adventure stories, military stories. You know, you had people like Bernard Cornwell had done his Sharp series and there was the older stuff, C.S. Forrester with Hornbuck. There was very little. And you clearly got the impression, and I know any new author or aspiring author thinks this, but there was clearly a sense that for publishers, as far as they were concerned, it, this was somewhat lower than publishing pornography. I mean, it was basically, they just <laughs> didn't want anything to do with this. Mm -hmm. So I was partly writing a book that I thought wasn't there, um, but also it was just to see... I'd gone through that phase, as, as you often do when you're young, of looking at, same as, you know, you watch a film or you read a book and you think, I could do better than this. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it was, well, okay, I better try then. <laughs> um, right. But I think the lesson of that was that I probably couldn't do it better than this <laughs> at the time then anyway. But you, do you remember how many words that was? Uh, probably about I mean, 20,000, something like that. Oh, okay. So a big book. So, I mean, but I think you're absolutely right, though, in terms of, hey, I got that out of the way, because first of all, all the stuff that you learn from that, that you probably don't give yourself credit for is 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 pretty significant, right? You finished a 120,000 word novel, which is, I mean, finishing a book is the biggest impediment to anyone writing. Like, I know the amount of writers I know who just don't finish the book, you know, because everything's got to be perfect and not knowing that it. It won't be perfect no matter what yeah. you do. Um, and, and you know, how much you you absorbed in terms of, you know, crafting a story. And it probably wasn't good. My th first three books <laughs> didn't sell. <laughs> but how much did I learn writing those that helped mm -hmm. me sell my fourth book? I, I don't, you know, they shouldn't have sold. And I'm glad that they didn't. They weren't <laughs> yes. ready to be. But you probably learned a lot from that. Um, I think so. I mean, um it's so long ago now, it's it's hard to remember. And I, and then when I, as I say, I wrote another one, this would have been about 2004, something like that. Because so again, 10 years thought, later. Yeah, had a, another, because I'd written all these other books and I was doing early on about a nonfiction book a year, which is quite tight. Yeah. When you do the, but at first I was building on research I'd already done. Right. But even so, it was it was it was like doing another thesis every year, basically. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I, I sort of knew how this was this worked, but it it wasn't you know tenable in the long term. Um, so I had another go, and I thought, well, before, whereas I'd written something set in Napoleon's army and all this sort of thing, I thought, well, let's go to the ancient world. This is the thing I really know, and do a a story of the, there was a British leader called Caraticus who gets defeated by the Romans when they invade Britain. But when he's sent to Rome, instead of being executed, he's pardoned. And I was assuming that he lives on for decades to sort of tell. It was basically rather than the famous I Claudius, this was I Caraticus, basically. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. And some of it was probably good. Some of it, I suspect, was awful. Um, but it got me an agent, if rather indirectly. I think only because I, first of all, from the agent I'm, I'm still with, and she's been marvelous, 
I sent this in and got a rejection letter from them. So I was about to sort of look through the artists and writers yearbook, find some more. And then a few weeks later, the phone went and they said, why haven't you sent us any more chapters? So, hmm. so <laughs> and partly I think they'd realized that I also did the nonfiction because it turned out the agents married to someone who was then in the publisher. I was with the nonfiction. <laughs> right. uh, so there, there, there's, you know, this strange incestuous thing about right. And maybe thought, well, I don't know about this novel, but you could probably make something of him as a history writer. Um, huh. yeah, because then I, I went at Met and signed up for that. And as I she didn't sell, though I got a much better class of rejection letter when it came by <laughs> an agent than you'd ever had before. Yeah. So they they read your book, first of all, <laughs> which is amazing. And you know, and and again with my first three novels that were rejected, you know, if you can if you can, you know, discard your ego, um, which for me was very easy to do because I didn't know what I was doing as a writer and actually see like this New York editor read my book and wrote three full paragraphs on why they didn't like it. That's mm. tremendously valuable information, right? Yeah. Especially if they all start saying the same thing. Yeah, exactly. You've got to take the hint at that point. Yeah. And like, okay, how does that inform how do I write my next book? And, and it, it totally did. So it sounds like, you know, that, that, that might've been helpful for you as well. Well, it was, it, it took about another four five, five years or so. And I'd written, several non-fiction books, as I say, at a much better level. This suddenly turned from being a student existence to a very nice career, thank you very much, Yeah, with the history books. Um, and then went up to London, met my agent for lunch, and I was going to say, look, I think I'd like to write another novel again. Um, and she actually raised it first. So she obviously oh. had enough sense of how I was going, why don't we give it another shot? So I, which made me feel that she hadn't just taken me on for the history in the first place, that there was something about this confused and overlong novel I'd written before that, that, that Lisa, um, but then I surprised her by saying, well, I don't want to write about the ancient world. Can I write something about Napoleonic Wars and Duke Wellington's army and this sort of thing? Um, and that we eventually, it was, it was hard selling that first novel, which I wrote, and then she tried to sell. But eventually, I, by chance, got an agent who was on the wavelength to get what I was trying to do, hmm. um, and who was hugely influenced, even though I'm not with that publisher, not with him anymore, um, the way I write. So my books are quite dialogue heavy, because yeah. that's what he liked. Um, and well, and that's that's accessible too, right, to a reader? who's. I think so. I mean, yeah. it's... Um, but so that took a while. And that, that one was rewritten a lot. And there were various other people say, well, why don't you put this in and this thing? So it's, it's still, I always hoped people would have patience because it was the first of a series and read this, realize it's a bit slow. It's setting things up. And I hope that everything I write, the next book is always better because you're just sure. learning. Right. Well, and that's, that's a, that's an exciting prospect too, right? Is that you always yeah, exactly. have this feeling you, you, of like, you, I'm not, you, yeah. You don't have to look back and think, yeah, the best thing I've ever got to do <laughs> right. has happened. Right. <laughs> I, I always say that's one of the best things about being a writer because you can be 70 and be like the best maybe yet to come, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's exciting. And I, so I have so much respect for what you do and, and it's a lot of, it's very inaccessible to, 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 to me in terms of, you know, first of all, writing nonfiction, just the amount of work, you know, and I guess it's like everything you, like you're doing a, a book a year, nonfiction, and Not I guess anymore. you just, you, what's that? <laughs> Not anymore. I take about Not anymore. Three but at the time, <laughs> but just knowing how to do that and how to structure it and how to source everything um, is, is, beyond my 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 comprehension but then transitioning or at the same time writing a novel that's rooted in that same nonfiction, but then you know like dialogue uh heavy that's how do i capture those voices you know you might have a full understanding of you know the events but to capture the voices did you find that challenging yeah i mean it, it's it's <laughs> it it was scary, but it was exciting. It was that sort of sense of, because I, you know, again, I'd had these novels rejected before. I didn't know whether this one, and the the six novels I I did in that series, eventually they decided they didn't, the publisher didn't want any more, um, which left me, I was expecting, I'd planned it out to be about 12. Mm. Um, but it's, that was partly why I wanted to do something that wasn't the period I was writing nonfiction about. I mean, I've, I've come to that now, and I've written these Roman books, but I was a bit scared that I wouldn't be able to keep the two separate. 
Yeah. And that I am the worst possible audience for most historical novels, but particularly anything set in the ancient world. Because yeah, you'll tiny, tiny apart. things will bother me out of all proportion right. to their right. significant, you know, uh, that I, I just can't get, get past it. So yeah. it was nice to go to a different period. And the advantage of writing about Regency England is that you can get some sense of how people spoke. Yeah. In a way, you just can't with the Romans. Right. You've basically got to make up how your character is going to talk, the manners they have, because we don't, you know, there's no, there are novels from the ancient world, but they're so stylized, they don't really tell you anything. The the drama, the comedy is also quite stylized. And most of it by the period I'm writing about is centuries old anyway. So it'd be like putting Shakespearean English into a novel that's contemporary. Right. so with the Romans, you know, you just don't really know. Um, and there's so much as well that as an academic, I'm going to say, well, I'm writing about this and get to the point. I think it's very important for a historian to say, we don't actually know how they did this, sure. what was going on. We don't know yeah. when, which year this happened. You can't have that in a novel. You can't just open a door and there's nothing there. You know, <laughs> right. you've, you've got to... Right. Um, so I was always a bit worried I'd invent things and then 10 years later, I'll forget I've invented them. And I'll be scouring through ancient sources for, oh, there must be a reference to this. I'm sure it's there somewhere. Um, so it was nice at first doing com- history, yeah, but a completely different period. How are you able to, have you, I, I feel like there needs to be a level of forgiveness almost as you're writing a novel to, I because I could very much picture you wanting that tiny little detail to be right, even though it only takes somebody like you to notice that it's not right. <laughs> Has there been a level of forgiveness where you've been able to not do that to serve the story? Um, or do you slave away over making sure everything is historically accurate, even though you're writing a novel? I try to make it at least possible that it could have happened. That, that Sure. Way. Right. You um, want it to be believable. because, And that's easier with the Romans because there's so much we don't know about all the settings of my novels. I and mean, I've just finished draft one now about a um, a period where we know there's about three paragraphs describing what happened in these four or five years in an ancient source. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so right. it wow. is really wow. making things up. I've invented <laughs> right. a fictional city. I've invented, you know, um, there are some genuine real people in there, but it's all, um, so that's easy. Doing the, the earlier ones, there was one bit in the second novel I wrote, I remember the editor coming back to me and saying, oh, look, you know, you've got these characters stranded up in the mountains and all this sort of thing. Can't we have a storm or something like that? And I had, by chance, I'd come across someone who'd published a diary written by a real officer who was actually with the unit where my characters are. And he described the weather every day. And I went back and said, look, I'm sorry, that can't happen. It was good weather. This And that mattered. It, it mattered to you. It's easier to for me if I can... In a sense, I've sort of reconstructed it. Then I've added my fictional bits, and then I'm describing it. It's already there as a picture in my head. Yeah. Rather than consciously inventing, if that makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> Does... do, what kind of feedback do you get from your editors in terms of, um, you know, this is all well and good that this is perfectly mm. placed, but I need more action? Or is, is there always that kind of balance with them? It depends. I mean, I, I I did six with the same editor, um, the Napoleonic ones, and he was much more interactive in terms of the editor I've had since, um, who partly says, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really that keen on historical fiction, so I'm sort of, I'm just going to trust you. To <laughs> Whatever you say, man. The, the problem is it, the British experience, British editors, British publishing in general is very different in nature from any publishing company I've ever dealt with in the States hmm. that are business-like and reply to your emails and things like oh, this. Oh, wow. Not always quickly, but they, you know, you get a response. And yeah. um, the scariest one being from my nonfiction editor who replied to an email I'd rather naively sent. I knew she was expecting a baby, but I thought it was in a couple of months' time. Um, and it turned out she actually replied on the day she'd given birth oh. and stepped back this long as so I am now permanently at a moral disadvantage in anything right. she says I've got right. to do. It's basically this. <laughs> but um, with the other ones, I think probably because I've got, I, I have been a bit bolshy when it comes to the history, and I've said, look, that's the way it was. That's what I'm going to try and do. I don't mind for the benefit. The first novel, the first one, the Napoleonic one, there was an extra plot in this sort of mission with some Russian spies and all this sort of thing, which I had not been there originally. 
And I think it come, first of all, a suggestion from my agent. And I wrote it. Eventually, weirdly, the editor came back at the very end to say, look, I don't think this, this works. It shouldn't be there. It, did, it was always grafted on. But because there was just one line at the very end of this that I loved and I <laughs> felt really proud of, <laughs> I, I made them keep it. Yeah. And it, I think, and it's often been criticized in, you know, you sort of get reviews. And things like, this seems out of place. <laughs> but so I, <laughs> it, it's a strange thing because in the, the nonfiction, I definitely don't want anybody. You know, I once had an editor who just went completely cowboy on it and, and rewrote lots of things, was changing what I was saying in sentence, and not, not just to tidy up, but the meaning of things. Sure. And I thought, well, I've spent years studying this. You, you've just read this. And that, that's the only time I've sent back copy edits and said, look, I can't deal with this because I'm to correct all the, the mistakes that have been introduced is going to take so long that I'll miss the ones that I did put in there myself and I just haven't spotted in the earlier drafts. But otherwise... To say uh, publishing is is strangely casual in Britain, so you often a lot of stuff gets published that's hardly been edited at all. Oh, um, which is is worrying because you then think, well, all all those mistakes you know you will have made, and you know yeah. you know you know perfectly well you meant to say, right, and what's going on, and what your title you know, is actually editor. Can you please help me? <laughs> um, well, it's so it's it's an odd mixture. Um, so of the the Roman ones I've done, one was quite heavily edited, and we sort of had. We got on well. We sorted out in the end and came to a compromise. But I felt she was trying to turn it into something it wasn't. That was yeah. more like some other stuff that's out there, which is very good in its way, but it isn't me. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the other thing that's interesting, I think, about you is that you've managed to, you know, unlike 95% of authors, you've managed to make this a career and, and, a, and a consistent one. It I, seems I'm like still amazed that it's happened to be yeah, quite that, and 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 it's a you know it's a fair not I, I'm not going to say it's niche, mm. but I'm curious to see or hear from you about how how the market has changed because when you you know when you first sent out that very first novel, which may or may not have been good, mm. regardless, it, there there might not have just been a market for it, right? Um, and and as we know, the market changes for historical mm. fiction. For you know, look what yeah. you know Da Vinci Code did to mm. <laughs> different types of of novels. Um, how has that changed with what you're writing over time? It's hard to tell because you you're you're dealing not simply with the market which can only buy what it's given or what it's offered. Right. But also the perceptions of that at the publishing level that I often think isn't, sometimes it's very good, but sometimes you're dealing with editors and these days often committees of publicists and goodness knows what to commission something. And they are mainly people who don't actually read the sort of book they're making. Right. But then tell you what the audience wants. And sometimes they may be right, but sometimes I think they're not. Um, I, I mean, the first two I wrote and couldn't sell, one of the standard things was historical fiction doesn't sell. And this sort of adventure story doesn't sell. That was now with the first batch of rejects, when it was just me, fair enough. They're just saying anything to fob you off and to get rid yeah. of you. And they probably haven't read it at all. Um, but when it was coming with sometimes some comments, when, when the agent had sent it out, there was still that perception. And then there were a couple of authors who did very well um, with fiction set in the ancient world, like Conigledon, Simon Scarrow, people like that. And suddenly the, there was a perception the market was there. I suspect the desire had probably already always been there. It's just there weren't any books to read, so they couldn't sell. Um, I don't yeah. know. I mean, it helps with when there's there's a TV series that's or a movie that does well, you know, movies like Gladiator yeah. help boost things. Um right. You know, my nonfiction was boosted when um, a book called Rubicon by Tom Holland came out and did really well and amazed publishers. Hmm. Um, so they were then looking for other ancient people to write about the ancient world in an accessible way. Right. So I sort of always feel there's this cross-fertilization when other people come out with stuff. Sometimes it's it's similar to what you've been thinking about or doing. And if it does well enough, then there's a perception, okay, maybe we'll give it a try. Because then for about five, ten years, they published loads of historical fiction in Britain right. and a lot of it was awful um, and some of it's really good um, yeah. and as with any of those things that's a matter of taste but some of it you're looking through and thinking yeah they're just they think anything like this 
was going to sell. And, right. um, and some of it didn't. So they've now moved to a much more cautious level. There's less out there. And they're trying to decide, well, who's actually going to sell. So it, it's... You never quite know what's going to happen next, and it, it, it's it, it's there a bit with the nonfiction as well, but that's a bit steadier. Yeah, and I think I think ultimately what lies on top of all of it is, and as as much of a cliche as it sounds, like the story has to be there, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember immersing myself in James Clavell, and <laughs> and you know, some of it was inaccessible in terms of if you were to describe what this novel is about, most people mm-hmm. would say, or you know, Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth. You know, you think about, yeah. you know, here, here's an 800-page story about cathedral building. That doesn't sound like, and, and probably that wouldn't have sold without his name attached to it. Um, mm-hmm. But it, but some of these stories are, are wonderful human stories. Um, and and you can't just think, okay, the market is now here for <laughs> cathedral building stories. No, yeah. the market's here for a good story. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully, you know, the, the setting is, is, is a character in and of itself, but the story has to be there. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you sort of, you, you know, when you've got to write those dreadful letters and proposals trying to sell a concept to somebody or get, you have to put in those, well, it's just like this and it's just like that. And this has yeah. created, you know, this this movie or this TV series has created demand. But I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly both the nonfiction and the fiction, I've only ever written books that I would like to read. Right. And it, it's terribly vain, but I'm probably my biggest fan, sometimes perhaps the only one, because I... They're, they're the books that I would love to read, but aren't there, that somebody hasn't done. And maybe people have done similar, but there's just that, and you just hope that other people like them as well. But I, I think I think that's a fair point. And, and I've been criticized before, too, when I'm asked, like, well, who do I write for? And my answer, I write for myself. It sounds disingenuous, but it's completely mm-hmm. true because I don't outline. So I'm there exploring every day, like, what happens next? And that's, yeah. that's the joy. I'm like – it, I would want to read this or I would want to see this on the screen mm. if this were to happen. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully it, it resonates with other people. But I think if, if you do ultimately mm. write for yourself and you have good taste, you know, it's, it's, it's hard not to have something that's compelling when you're done. So, well, hopefully the, the, the sort of the craft of it all improves as you go along. Cause I don't, you know, I've never yeah. done any of the creative writing or all that sort of you know, all these courses, things you can do. And I, to be honest, I think it's just something you've got to learn by doing it. A hundred percent. Playing around with words and trying it. And sometimes writing stuff that no one will ever, ever see. Right. Right. But you just well, that, that's how you get a voice, right? Is, yeah. Is um, it, if I were to read 10 books on how to write, it's, you know, you're going to sound completely disaffected in terms mm. of voice. But if after a time you're like, I like the cadence of this, I like the mm. staccato of this and you know, and then you get feedback, obviously, but you do develop that voice. And and I agree. And it takes <laughs> book upon book upon book and it's constantly changing. So, but that's what's exciting about it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, I mean, I think you've got to fall in love with each project, each thing you're doing, whether whatever it is, and probably hate it when it's getting to that point about three quarters of the way through and it can't finish soon enough, but you've still got to, right. You can't sort of sit down one morning and just throw it all out, you know, and it it's there. There's that. I write faster and faster as I get into a story. The, the, the start is always really painful. It is. It is. And usually I'll go back and I'll rewrite most of those early chapters right. because they just don't, and there'll be several attempts and there's a lot, a lot of staring at a, a blank page and just it, it's it's why it's nice to have a good view from the office window because at least you can look <laughs> right. out and right. look at the scene sort of thing. Um, exactly. But you've got to sit there. I think if you don't sit there and make yourself, you're probably thinking through things or you're trying to, or somehow it, I don't know, so much of it to me anyway, isn't that conscious. You know, yeah, right. you do have these good ideas and think, oh yeah, that character could do this. But then a lot just seems to happen. Right. And after a while you feel the characters are almost making up their own story. Right. But and they just you you just let them loose somehow and the, and it's that's what they do, you know. It's the- because that's a muscle, right? And and that mm. probably was not the case with your very first novel. My very first novel it was it was every sentence was like drawing blood. And after a while you right that that unconscious writing comes from years of building that muscle of allowing those characters to speak um, that, that you need in order for that to happen. I think. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I write faster now as well. Oh, sure. 
yeah, yeah. Which again, again I, and like I'm not quite out. sure how, or, but it just seems, and there's less, you generally feel you've got to go back less and change it all or improve it all. It's, 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 it's like anything you get better. Over yeah. time, if, if, if you if you're critical of yourself and and you're you're honest with yourself, you you can only really improve. Um, so so now we're going to do a quick storytelling. Uh, I've actually uh, so rather than picking a random book, I actually selected three books, and I'll let you choose one, and we're going to pick a random <laughs> sentence from there. Um, so your offerings are uh, Neil Gaiman's uh, Neverwhere, uh, Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. Or Robert Harris's Pompeii. Speaking of, uh, I haven't actually Romans. read any of them, so I mean, the sort of uh, fair enough. I don't. I don't think it's fair to do Pompeii because if it starts off very Roman, that's not really a sort of. You're going to leave me in the in the dust. Okay, so not. Yeah. Pompeii. Well, no. Just in terms of, I might start talking about things that no normal sane person <laughs> should know about or will ever remember. <laughs> Um, I don't mind the, the Neil Gaiman. I, I don't mind. So. All right. So Neil Gaiman. So pick a number between one and 300. Um, right. 115 is the year of the, the novel that's coming out in, in August. So that'll give us okay. that. And then um, uh, pick a sentence between one and five. Um, let's go for five. If it's a bad one, just jump something else. <laughs> so it's kind of random. They're all random. That's the whole point of it. So I'm going to read the first sentence, and then you give me a sentence or two, whatever you want to do, and then I'll do a couple. And then after a couple minutes, I'll I'll call the end of the story. But I did, and it can go wherever we want it to go. It was not a particularly clean handkerchief. It had been a present from his aunt Maud on his last birthday. And Aunt Maud always said that his handkerchiefs needed to be burned after he'd had them for a day or two. <laughs> He took the handkerchief and did what he needed to do with it, then shoved it in his pocket. He looked at his wife and said, this might be the very last time. But I hope it'll work. But um, you know me and anything mechanical, it probably is going to break on us again. She told him she was worried about him and that she didn't want him to go, but he insisted that he must. He left the house, started up the car, and wondered if she had spotted the lies he'd been telling her. But in the end, he had a job to do. And if he didn't do it, the people who'd hired him weren't going to be pleased. He drove off, took a right, double-backed, hoping nobody was following him. It took only 20 minutes, but he wished it had taken forever. By the time he got to the door that he needed to knock on, he could feel the sweat trickling down the back of his neck, making his shirt stick to him. He waited, drew a deep breath, and knocked. He heard the footsteps from inside and the door opened. What surprised him was that it was a child who finally opened the door. About 13 years old, a girl, she called him by his name. His hands still hesitated before going into the pocket of his trench coat. She looked so young. It wasn't innocent that was the the word he would use. There was just youth and life. Follow me, she said, and he did. Down a corridor to another room where there was two chairs set and a small table between them, but nobody else. She sat in one of the chairs, told him to come inside, and then asked him if he had been expecting somebody else. I was assuming it was your father would be here. Is he, still cu- is he still not back? She said, my father's never coming back. I thought you knew that. Please sit down, because if you don't do this job, then neither of us are ever going to leave this house. He noticed that the blind was up on the window beside them, thought he saw something, perhaps a darker shadow in the shadows or just movement. He waited. I'm going to call it there. I think that's great. I, I love I love ending it where it's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm still confused. <laughs> but it's fun, right? Because you never know oh, where yeah. it's going to go. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the, the, the sort of the burdens. I mean, it's good in a way, but do you find often you just have these ideas and you keep thinking that would be a good story or wouldn't that be a great scene? And you're not quite sure where they're going or the, you think about something, you think I could write something on that. Or wouldn't that be a good story? Totally. I've done, so I've done a lot of these and it's always fascinating how like immediately to my mind, I can just see like, okay, cinematically, this is, you know, I could picture this girl perfectly. Yeah. Um, 
And then I do get excited about it, but then you have to like, well, now they threw me a curveball. Now I don't know what's, what's <laughs> happening. And I just, I love the mental challenge of it all. Uh, but yeah, in terms of my writing, I usually don't even think during the day about my stories. I, mm. until I sit down to write, which is only about an hour a day, then it just kind of all engulfs me and I get to escape for about an hour or so. Um, mm. But, but otherwise I'm rarely thinking about them and I don't know quite why that is. Cause I know other authors who are constantly leaving notes to themselves and things like that. Oh, I don't do that. I sort of think <laughs> if any idea is good enough, you'll remember it. Yes. And while there is that nagging sense of, Oh, there was this brilliant idea that you had at midnight when you woke up, you know, <laughs> but I think it probably wasn't that good <laughs> if you've forgotten it or if it's really good, it'll come back or it'll in some way shape what you're doing. But it, it's, it's more that, I sort of feel there isn't quite enough time to do all the things you'd like to write about. Right. Um, right. And just because again, I'm never happy unless I've, I've got a book on the go or sometimes more than one. You're reading so much and you just want more stories out right. there. And, and the thought is, well, I've got to make them, some of them. There's lots of good ones, great. And I'm going yeah. to enjoy that. But um, it's that. So I'm probably going to do something completely different after I've got, I've got one more Roman novel to do in this current trilogy. And then I think something completely different, different, still be historical, but more yeah. recent, different sort of period. Um, and that was only because I went to the agent and said, look, I've got to write this. <laughs> right. just, um, right. And there are one or two things I've done that will never be paid for published or anything, but it just it started. And I, <laughs> It's the same as if I go for a walk. It seems to calm my thoughts, but I don't yeah. ever remember walking along and thinking that's how the character can get out of this or that's right. what they've got to do. But you come back and you write. Right. And it's there somehow right. as if someone else has. Well, you're, you're, you're certainly a born storyteller. I mean, there's no question about that. And uh, what a great pleasure to get a chance to uh, pick your brain a little bit today and hear about your kind of your origin story. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I, and I love you know, I have so much respect for somebody who can write nonfiction and fiction and juggle them both and keep them straight. And, you know, the amount of research, I just, it's, it's fascinating to me. So I'm um, congratulations on all your success. Well, thank you. But I think it's really turning a hobby somehow or other has turned into a living. <laughs> I'm still think that someone's going to call up one day and say, look, sorry, you can't do this anymore. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you shouldn't be able to get away with this. It's the- well, you've managed to parlay it for quite some time. So <laughs> I think so you're, far, so good. you're in pretty good shape. <laughs> so, well, thanks for talking to me and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much for having take, me. Take care, Adrian. Bye. So there you have it. That was my conversation with Adrian Goldsworthy. Um, fantastic guy. I really uh, enjoyed getting to know him a little bit better, getting to spend a little bit of time with him. Um, you know, I just appreciated his uh, his his wisdom uh, and his intelligence. And I'm just in such awe of people who write uh, detailed historic fiction. I, I just think that's such a tremendous challenge. Um, so hats off to him. Remember to check out his latest book, The Fort, along with his other books on um, ancient Roman warfare. And if you want to know more about him, you can check him out at adriangoldsworthy.com. If you want to find out more about me, you can just go to carterwilson.com. And I highly recommend you subscribe to my newsletter because um, I, I reveal a lot in there and I enjoy doing that and I get good feedback on it. So please uh, visit my website and sign up and you can judge for yourself. More episodes coming out soon. In the meantime, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening.